If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 4. This morning we'll be finishing Acts chapter 4 and making our way into Acts chapter 5. If you're new with us this morning, you should know that we are making our way through a series on the book of Acts. The reason why we take books of the Bible and preach them verse by verse is as much as possible, we want the Word of God to set the agenda. My job on Sunday morning is simply to deliver the mail. I don't get to make up the message, I just try to deliver it faithfully. So all that to say, as we dive into Acts 4, let me pray and ask that God would enable me to be faithful to that task. Lord, we do pray this morning that you would enable me to preach your word faithfully. The goal this morning is not to give my opinion or to give my thoughts, but rather to try to be faithful to what your word teaches. And I recognize that for that to happen, you are going to have to be the one who does the work this morning. We pray that the preparation this week was done in a way that's honor to you. Now we just pray that you would enable me to speak in a way that brings honor to you. And that your word would be faithfully proclaimed. We have great confidence that the Bible is in fact your word. And we pray that we would receive it as such today. That regardless of what may be going on in our life, maybe for some this week was amazing, others this week was terrible, many others somewhere in between. But whatever distractions we bring in here this morning, and even what distractions may be in this room, we just pray God that you would speak to us clearly through your word. If there's anything that I say this morning that's not helpful, I pray that it would fall on deaf ears. But I do pray that if your word is faithfully proclaimed, it would, la- it would land on our hearts. And that it would convict us of sin, encourage us in righteousness, and ultimately give us a greater love for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you do this for your glory and for our good? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So on January 10th of 2012, a young Christian from Seattle, Washington named Jefferson Bethke posted a video on YouTube entitled, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. The video quickly went viral. Within the first 48 hours, the video Bethke performing his spoken word poem had garnered more than 7 million views, and within the first year, more than 23 million views. The basic premise of the video, at least as near as I can tell, is that following Jesus is different than being religious. And more to the point, from Bethke's perspective, following Jesus is good, while religion is bad. Now the truth is, I know next to nothing about Jefferson Bethke based on the video and the subsequent things I've read about him. It seems that his intentions were good, and he genuinely desired to help people see their need for a relationship with Christ. But having said that, I think it's fair to point out that making an overgeneralized statement like Jesus is good and religion is bad is perhaps an oversimplification, especially as it relates to the topic of religion. It's not so simple to say all religion is bad. Now, that question, I think we can safely say that Jesus was most critical of religious leaders in his teaching. But upon further examination, it doesn't seem that he's critical of their religion so much as he was critical of their self-righteousness and their man-made rules for religion. In other words, religion wasn't the problem. Bad motives and wrong ways of thinking about religion were the problem. I don't think you can make the argument from the Bible that religion itself is bad. In his incarnated state, Jesus himself seemed to be a very religious person. And in James 1.27, James speaks of a religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction to keep oneself unstained from the world. So while there is bad religion, motivated by self-righteousness and legalism, I think there's also such a good thing as true and good religion that's motivated by a love for God and a love for others. Now, actually, I think that's something Jefferson Bethke would probably agree with based on subsequent interviews I've read from him, but it's not something that he articulated well in that video. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus is good and religion is bad. It's just too much of a broad overstatement. 
Of course, Jesus is good, and of course, self-made religion or self-righteous religion is bad, but true religion that's motivated by a love for God and a love for others is good. I think it's vital that we see the distinction between the two so that we don't throw out the baby of good religion with the bathwater of bad religion. Good religion is beautiful and good and lovely and should be embraced. Bad religion is ugly and wicked and disastrous and should be opposed at every turn. And actually, I think our passage today helps us to see the contrast between those two things. In Acts 4, verses 32 to 37, through the example of the early church, and in particular through the example of a man named Barnabas, we see the beauty of true religion that's motivated by a genuine love for God. And it is awesome. But then, in Acts 5, verses 1 to 11, in the infamous example of Ananias and Sapphira, we see the danger of false religion that's motivated by a love of self and a desire for the praise of man, and it is deadly. In fact, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, literally so. And in those two passages that are set next to each other, I think the author of Acts, Luke, and of course, ultimately God, wants us to see the stunning contrast between the beauty of true religion and the deadly poison of false religion. And my hope is that in studying these two passages together this morning, we will be motivated to pursue that which is good and right and pure and holy. And we will, on the other hand, at the same time, run as fast as we humanly can from the poison of false religion. That's my hope this morning. So I'm going to ask you to stand here now as we turn our attention to the Word of God. If you're physically able, standing is a simple way we can show our reverence for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Acts 4.32-5.11 to 5.11 is our passage this morning. Words will be on the screen here, or you can follow along as I read, or you can read along in your own Bibles. Acts 4.32-5.11. through 5, Let me remind you as a read. In fact, the reason why we stand is to remind ourselves this is the Word of God. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means a son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all those who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So again, I think the genius here of Acts 4, 32 and 37 and Acts 5, 1 to 11 is the stunning contrast that is found between these two passages. 
In Acts 4, 32-37, you have an amazing picture of the beauty of true religion as it's motivated by a love for God and love for others. But then in Acts 5, verses 1-11, to you have a devastating picture of the danger of false religion that's motivated by a love of self and a desire to be seen by others for the, and to live for the praise of men. And the goal for us this morning is to be spurred on towards the good example while running away from the negative example. To that end, I think it's worth slowing down to look at each of these two passages here so that we can see both the positive example and the negative one. So I want you first to notice the beauty of true religion. We see this in verses 32 to 37. In verses 32 to 37, the early church is clearly being presented in a positive light. They're engaging in religious activity, care for one another, proclamation of the good news, charitable works towards one another. And it's a beautiful picture of what religion looks like when it's rightly lived out. But I think it's important for us to see that the motivation or the driving force behind this is a love for God and a love for others because the motivation is the key. In fact, we see this starting in verse 32. Verse 32 of chapter 4 says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now the context of what I just read in Acts 4.32 matters. In Acts 1, you'll remember, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come, and when the Holy Spirit would come, it would come with power on believers, and they would bear witness to his name. Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on followers of Christ. Acts 3, Peter and John heal a lame man in the name of Jesus, and then they proclaim Jesus as the Christ. Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested because of their proclamation of Christ, later released, and then the church prays they would have boldness to keep preaching Jesus. All of that forms the background for Acts 4.32. When Luke tells us in verse 32 that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, he's clearly pointing to a unified group. But he's not talking about unity in a generic way. Given the context of Acts 4, he's talking about a very specific type of unity. A unity that is based on a common love for Jesus and a common empowerment by the Holy Spirit. And this is confirmed in the language of verse 33. Verse 33, and with great power... The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Again, we see this centeredness on Jesus Christ. This is what unifies them together. Now, the truth is that people can be united by a lot of different things, can't they? People can be united by a common set of political beliefs. Or, as we see on Saturdays in the fall, people can be united by a common love for a football team, or in some cases, a common frustration with a football team. Either way, they can be united by sports. People can also be united by common love for music. A diverse group of people can go to a concert together, and for a few hours, they can set aside all their differences and be united in their love for this group or this musician. And for that matter, there are a million other things that can unite people together also. A common love for Marvel movies, a common love for dogs or cats, a common love for farming or bird watching or baking or sci-fi books or even weird things like Iowa State Athletics. The point is, There are a lot of things that can bring unity. But Luke has a very specific unity in mind here in Acts 4. A unity that is based on a common love for Jesus. And that type of unity that's being empowered by the Holy Spirit produces radical action precisely because it is being empowered by the Holy Spirit and it's a result of the grace of God, which is what I think verse 33 is getting at. And in that way, the unity that Luke is describing here is much different than any unity that we'll see in the world. Unity that's based on things like politics or sports or music or other common hobbies, it's nice. But ultimately, that type of unity is flimsy 
because it's based on an unsturdy foundation. Political parties fracture all the time. Sports teams regularly divide over debates within their fan base. Should we fire this coach? Should we run this offense? Bands eventually break apart, and so do their fans. And we could go on and on with other examples that would demonstrate the unstable nature of worldly unity. But it's not just that worldly unity is unstable. It's also that unity based on things like politics, sports, music, hobbies, is typically not weighty enough to endure real adversity. For example, you may like the person that you work out, at, work out with at the gym, and thus have a certain unity with them, but it doesn't take much to disrupt that unity if a more serious issue comes along. It's an unstable unity. But that's not the case with the type of unity that Luke is describing in Acts 4. The unity of Acts 4 is a supernatural unity that's empowered by the Spirit and given by the grace of God and based on a common love for Jesus. By the way, I'm fully aware of the fact that oftentimes churches divide also. Their unity is fractured, but I would argue the reason that's happening is because in those moments they're not being led by the Spirit. Because the type of unity we see here in Acts 4, a supernatural unity that's led by the Spirit, is the type of unity that does not break. And it actually leads to radical action, which is what we see in verses 34 to 37. Verse 34, keep in mind the background here. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now listen, if you separate verses 34 from, to 37 from verses 32 to 33, or for that matter, from the context of the book of Acts as a whole, you will miss the point of the religious activity of verses 34 to 37. The point is not that the early church was radically generous towards others, although that's true. The point is that they were radically generous towards others because they had a love for Jesus and because the Spirit was empowering them to do so. With great power, they were testifying to the resurrection of Christ. With great grace upon them, this is why they were acting the way they did. Because of their love for Christ and because the Spirit was empowering, they were radically generous. It was not a forced generosity or a generosity done out of religious duty. There's no hint here that those in the church were being forced to sell their land in order to help others. This is not some early form of communism here. In fact, as chapter 5 makes clear, they had the complete freedom to do whatever they wanted with their land and to do whatever they wanted with their property. And even if they sold it, they were not obligated to give it all away. But rather... What's going on here in Acts 4 is a voluntary love for others that's being spurred on by love for Christ. In other words, they're selling their property because they love God. And because they see that their property and their money ultimately belong to God, they're willing to sell it and then give to others. So many were selling their property and they were giving to the apostles so it could be distributed to those in need because of their love for Christ. And it's that motivation that makes their acts beautiful. Listen, I get it. In 2021, the word religion has some seriously negative connotations. And I get it. I understand why that's the case. In fact, in my own heart, there's probably some negative connotations. But I would argue that our disdain for religion is actually a disdain for false religion that's motivated by self-righteousness and a love for self. True religion of the Christian sort, which is the only true religion there is, by the way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But true religion of the Christian sort is motivated by a love for God and a love for others. And we see that in the example of the church in verses 34 to 37, and in particular in the example of Barnabas, Barnabas in verses 36 and 37. 
In verses 36 to 37, Barnabas is noted as one who gave generously. Now, Barnabas will play a significant role later in the book of Acts, and perhaps that's part of the reason why he's mentioned here. But he's also mentioned because he's an example of radical generosity that was motivated by love for God. Barnabas' real name, we're told, was Joseph, but he's known as Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And Barnabas lives up to that name. He is an encourager. And here he encourages by selling his property to help those in need. He generously sacrifices in order to bless others. No doubt, it's a religious act, charitable giving, but it's a beautiful one because of the motivation. He loves God, he loves others, and this is what spurs him on. So again, I get it, religion gets a bad rap, and oftentimes for good reason. But true religion that's motivated by a love for God, as seen here in verses 32 to 37, is beautiful. But, that said, as the very next passage makes clear, there is such a thing as bad religion too. And bad religion or false religion is real and it is ugly. And one of the things I appreciate about the Bible is it does not shy away from ugliness. A lot of people will talk about the New Testament church and say, well, we just need to get back to the way the New Testament church was. And while I understand what they're saying, and certainly there are a lot of things we want to emulate about the New Testament church, their boldness, their dependence on the Holy Spirit, their prayerful attitude, their radical generosity. I think we should also be clear in saying this. The early church was not perfect. They were messed up too. And if you don't believe me, read the book of 1 Corinthians. Or for that matter, look at this next passage. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. If Acts 4, 32 to 37 shows us a picture of, of the beauty of true religion, Acts 5, verses 1 to 11 shows us the deadly poison of false religion. And that's the contrast, the beauty of true religion now with the deadly poison of false religion. Look, starting in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself part of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now it's clear from the language of verses 1 and 2 that Ananias and Sapphira were committed to religious activity. In fact, the language of verses 1 and 2 is remarkably similar to the language of chapter 4 that we just read in verses 32 to 37. We're told that Ananias and Sapphira, like the believers in chapter 4, sold a piece of property. And they brought it and put it at the apostles' feet. And they laid the proceeds there. That's the exact same as what happened in chapter 4. The difference, though, as compared to chapter 4, is that Ananias and Sapphira only brought some of the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, let me be clear on this. As the rest of verses 3 and 4 will be clear, they were under no obligation to sell the field. Furthermore, they were under no obligation to give all the proceeds of the field once they'd sold it. They were free to do with the money as they wanted. So the issue here is not that they only gave some of the proceeds of the field. The issue is they were being deceptive. They were trying to make it seem like they were giving all of the proceeds when in fact they were holding back some for themselves. They wanted the credit and the praise for being generous without the sacrifice of actually being generous. And in doing so, in their act of deception, they lied to the Holy Spirit, who is God, which is something Peter makes clear in his language in verses 3 and 4. He says, you lied to the Holy Spirit, and then later he says, you lied to God, because the Holy Spirit is God. And in lying to the Holy Spirit and ultimately deceiving the church, they were disrupting the unity of the church. It is an ugly scene. 
Whereas Barnabas was motivated by his love for God and love for others, Ananias and Sapphira are motivated by their love for self. They wanted the praise of men. They weren't giving because of their love for others. They were giving because they loved themselves. They were religious in their activity, but it was a poisonous religion. It was a religion driven by a love for self and a desire to be praised by others, and it costs them dearly. In fact, this is the part of the passage that we're probably most familiar with. Verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Verse 8, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It's a pretty radical story, right? Ananias and Sapphira lied to God. They deceived the church and they are struck down for it. It's pretty dramatic. I think there are a few things we should probably say here about their death just to clarify. First of all, I think sometimes there's this misconception that in the Old Testament, God judges sin, but in the New Testament, he overlooks it, as if somehow God is different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament, and that's just not true. He's the same God in both the Old and New Testament, and the story of Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira reminds us of that. For that matter, Jesus taking the wrath of God on the cross reminds us of that. God takes sin just as seriously in the New Testament as he does in the Old Having said that, though, I think we should acknowledge something here. This dramatic judgment of sin, where Ananias and Sapphira struck down on the spot, and even stories like that that we see in the Old Testament are rare. Even though there are multiple incidences we see in both the Old and New Testament where God dramatically strikes down sinners on the spot, those instances are the exception and not the norm. Most of the time, God in his mercy defers his judgment till later. Now, the reason why I think he executes swift judgment here on Ananias and Sapphira is to be an example to the early church. And for that matter, an example to us, that the church must strive for holiness and must fight against sin. A church that is indifferent to sin won't last long, and it certainly won't survive the judgment of God. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, they were willing to play the religious game, but their hearts were not right before God, and God's righteous judgment fell on them as an example to the rest of the church. Now, some have asked the question, were Ananias and Sapphira actually believers who just got caught up in the snare of false religion? They were killed on the spot, but later they were with God. Or were they never believers to begin with, who just knew how to play the game? The truth is, we don't know. What we do know, though, is this. Their sin costs them their life. And in their death, we are reminded of something very important, that God takes sin very, very seriously. We may play with sin, and dabble in it as if it's no big deal. We may even excuse our sin and say things like, well, it's just a little lie. It doesn't really hurt anybody. Or if we struggle with something like lust or anger, we say, well, everyone else deals with that too. Or we may be a little bit hypocritical, like Ananias and Sapphira. We may put on a face to make people think we're more religious than we actually are, and we think, well, it doesn't really hurt anybody. But the story of Ananias and Sapphira should remind us that sin is always a big deal. And of course, Jesus dying on the cross to take the wrath of God for us should remind us sin is a big deal too. Listen, when we read this story, I think our response should be we need to take our sin seriously. 
But I think also our response to be one of gratitude. And that God is gracious, typically deferring his judgment. And even more importantly, we should be gracious because God sent his son to take the punishment for us. If we're honest, every person in this room deserves the fate of Ananias and Sapphira to be struck down on the spot. And in fact, worse, to experience the wrath of God forever. And yet in his mercy, God typically defers his judgment and doesn't strike us down on the spot. And more importantly, even sent his son to pay the punishment for our sins. And so if you're here today, I hope if you're not a believer, you would see the story of Ananias and Sapphira and think, you know, I should probably take my sins seriously. I should probably turn to Christ for salvation so that I can escape a similar form of judgment, if not worse. So all that to say, I don't think there's any way you can read Acts 5, 1 to 11 and think, sin's not a big deal. The dead bodies of Ananias and Sapphira, and by the way, Luke goes out of his way to help us see they really died. They were carried out. They were buried, he says. They died. The dead bodies of Ananias and Sapphira remind us sin is, in fact, a big deal. And religion that is motivated by love for self and desire for the praise of others is, in fact, a deadly poison. Now, having said all that, my goal this morning is not to simply tell you a tale about Ananias and Sapphira so as to scare you to death, no pun intended. For that matter, my goal this morning is not to highlight Barnabas is good religion and say, hey, let's start a Barnabas fan club. That's not the goal. Rather, as I said earlier, my goal this morning is this. In studying these two passages, I hope that God will motivate us to pursue true and good religion while at the same time running from false religion as fast as we humanly can. And so to that end, I want to ask two questions this morning. Two questions by way of application. One related to Barnabas the other related to Ananias and Sapphira. So question number one, like Barnabas, are you compelled by the love of Christ to love others with radical generosity? So like Barnabas, are you compelled by the love of Christ to love others with a radical generosity? Again, I think there might be a temptation for us to dismiss all religion as bad, but Barnabas's charitable giving is good because it's motivated by the right reasons. His love for Christ his love for others spills over into radical action. And let's be clear, Barnabas' actions, along with those in the early church, were radical. From everything we know from history, the early Christians in the first century were not rolling in money. No doubt there were some wealthy Christians, but by and large, many were poor and scraping to get by. And so if your picture here of Acts 4 is, well, they're probably just selling their, their lake houses on the Sea of Galilee, their vacation homes, that's probably not what's happening here. What they're selling is probably part of their livelihood. They're sacrificing in order to help other Christians in need. And they're doing so because they love Christ, and because the Spirit was empowering them to do so. That's true religion, and it's beautiful. And listen, if you've ever seen this happen in your own life, then you know it's beautiful too. Probably about 10 years ago now, we were in the middle of our adoption process with our daughter. And part of that process involved raising some pretty extensive funds because adoption is costly. To that end, some of our friends helped us throw a garage sale with all the profits from the garage sale going towards adoption costs. It was a really cool gesture by our friends. It was really encouraging to us. I'm not sure how much we made from the garage sale itself, but it was a sizable amount and we were grateful. But the biggest fundraiser at the garage sale wasn't actually the garage sale itself. It was actually a little donut stand that our son Noah manned. Noah was probably four years old at the time, and so we set up a little table for him with donuts and a simple sign, donuts for adoption. And then we put a tip jar by it. And it was crazy what people put in that tip jar. 
We had random strangers put in $500 in the tip jar that day. We had people that we barely knew putting in that much or more. But by far the most meaningful gift, at least from my perspective, came from a college student named Joshua Haven. I met Joshua through a mutual friend. We would see each other on occasion. He actually helped out with some ministry stuff in the youth ministry I was doing. It was obvious that he loved Christ. But because he didn't go to the same church as I did or live in the same neighborhood, our paths rarely crossed. I don't even know that I could legitimately say we were friends. We were acquaintances. Now, he's an acquaintance that I respected a ton, which is why I asked him to help with youth ministry, because his love for Christ was just oozing out of the guy. But we were just acquaintances. And yet, for whatever reason, that day he heard about the garage sale and he stopped by. Now, to my knowledge, Joshua was indeed your stereotypical poor college student. He didn't drive a nice car. He didn't have fancy clothes that I know if he didn't come from a wealthy family. But despite his economic situation, that day, Joshua dropped a check into the tip jar. And it wasn't until the sale was over and we started going through the checks that we realized that Joshua had written us a check for $1,000. Actually, my wife thinks there's a lot more, but just to be conservative, I think it's $1,000. Now, I know there's been a lot of talk of inflation lately, and maybe $1,000 isn't what it used to be, but I still think it's a lot of money. And I'll tell you this, for a poor college student back in 2011, it was an unbelievable amount of money, an incredible act of generosity, especially given that he hardly knew us. Even this week, as I've thought back on that event, as I was in my office thinking about what he did, it choked me up to realize that's radical generosity. He didn't know us that well. He didn't expect anything in return, but he loved Jesus, and he cared for orphans, and he sacrificed his money to show his love. He didn't want his name on a plaque or a building named after him. He didn't want to be highlighted at a donor banquet. He didn't want any notoriety at all. Listen, there may be a legitimate place for those things to happen sometimes, but if that's our motivation, something's messed up. In his case, he wasn't motivated by any of those things. He just dropped his check in the jar, and he left. I tried to think this week, did I ever see him after that? I I don't know. I know he's still alive. I see him every once in a while on social media, so I know he's still there. But I don't know if I've seen him since. He dropped the check, and he left. He was our Barnabas. He radically sacrificed because he loved Jesus. He didn't give to be seen by others. He gave because the love of Christ compelled him. And my question for you this morning is simply this. Does the love of Christ ever compel you to make similar sacrifices? Now to be clear, I'm not just talking about money here, although money is often a barometer of our hearts. But what I'm asking is this. Because of your love for Christ, are you ever compelled to sacrifice your time, your convenience, your resources, or your money for the sake of others and the sake of the gospel? If so, if the answer is yes, praise God. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. If you are being motivated to give in that way of your time, your resources, your money, because you love Jesus, that is a work of the Spirit. But if not, I think it's worth asking this question. I think it's worth tracing your steps backward and asking, have I lost sight of how generous God was with me? Here's the thing. It would be easy to read about the example of Barnabas or to hear about the example of Joshua Haven and think, I just need to be more sacrificial. I just need to give more. But if that's what you're thinking, I think you're missing the point of this passage. Barnabas loved others and sacrificed for others because he loved Jesus and because the Spirit was working in him. And the same was true for Joshua. True religion is not compelled by a sense of guilt or a sense of duty. It's compelled by a love for Christ. So if you struggle to love others or sacrifice for them, the solution is not simply try harder, feel more guilty. No, the solution is remember the great love of Jesus. 
Jesus laid down his life for us. Jesus took the punishment for our sin that we deserve to take. Jesus took the eternal wrath of God that we deserve to take ourselves. That is radically generous. And by the way, if you've never responded to that, respond today. The free offer of the gospel is made to you that if you turn to Christ, your sins can be wiped out. He will take the wrath of God for you. And if you're a Christian, that type of radical generosity should move you to be radically generous towards others. As he's been to us, so we will want to be to others. Listen, do not take Acts 4, 34 to 37 out of its context or out of the context of the book of Acts. Barnabas and others didn't sacrifice to fulfill some religious duty. The reason why they gave what they did is because of their love for Christ and because they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And if we know Christ and if we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we will be motivated to do the same, to love others with a radical generosity just as God has loved us. So the first question of application is simply, like Barnabas, are you compelled by the love of Christ to love others with radical generosity? The second is related to Ananias and Sapphira. Like Ananias and Sapphira, are there elements of your religious activity that are motivated by a love for self and a desire for the praise of others? That's my second application question. Like Ananias and Sapphira, are there elements of your religious activity that are motivated by a love for self and a desire for the praise of others? So I'm just going to be honest with you. The thing about the story of Ananias and Sapphira is this. My first reaction when I read this story is to think, those knuckleheads, right? How did they think they were going to get away with this? How did they think they were going to deceive the church? More importantly, how did they think they are going to deceive God? But the more I've thought about that story this week, the more I've realized I have some serious Ananias and Sapphira tendencies myself. Like Ananias and Sapphira, sometimes my religious actions are motivated more by a desire to be seen by others than they are a love for God. Like Ananias and Sapphira, sometimes my religious actions are driven more by love of self than they are love of others. To give a simple but ugly illustration from my own life, I've been on three mission trips to Taiwan. On the first mission trip, upon the recommendation of our, our trip leader, we were told to take some t-shirts along so we could give them away to the Taiwanese friends that we met. The idea was that we'd just be generous and show them, hey, we love you, this is a simple way you can remember our love for you. And on that first trip, when I went, I ended up doing that, and what I got in return actually was, and this wasn't the intent of it, but the Taiwanese students started giving me some shirts back. I got some really cool shirts back, actually. One of them gave me an ultimate Frisbee jersey that was just awesome. It had the coolest logo on it. I still have it today. And so the next time I went back, and this is where the story starts to get ugly, I thought, I hate to even admit this, I thought, you know, I'm going to take some more shirts. That turned out pretty good for me last time. I'm going to give away some more shirts because I bet I'll get some sweet ones in return. I was willing to go through the pretense of caring for others, a religious act, an act of religious charity, but ultimately the reason I was doing it was because... I loved myself. Now, it actually backfired that year, which I'm thankful for. I think God revealed that to me. And I'm not saying that I was exactly like Ananias and Sapphira. I was in the ballpark. I was in the ballpark. I was going through the motions of generosity, but only doing it to get something in return. And sadly, I have many more stories like that. Not all of them are related to Taiwanese t-shirts, by the way, but I have many more stories like that. Stories in which I did something in ministry, or in which I gave something, or which I took a certain action only because it made me feel good, and because it made me feel better about myself or benefited me in some way. And listen, I suspect I may not be alone in my Ananias and Sapphira tendencies. In fact, I want to ask you some questions this morning, just to diagnose your own heart. 
and to see if perhaps there are some Ananias Sapphira tendencies in you. If you were extraordinarily generous with your money, and yet no one ever knew that it was you, let alone thanked you, would that be okay with you? If you led a Bible study or taught a class, and no one ever encouraged you or thanked you for leading the class or said, you're a good teacher. In fact, sometimes people came and went from the class, and yet you're trying to be faithful to Christ. Would that bother you that you're not getting any credit? If you toiled in obscurity, maybe staying at home every day watching your kids, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, or maybe you're working in a job that you feel like just feels meaningless, and yet every day you did it for Jesus, and no one acknowledged you or praised you, would it be okay to know that He sees you? If you read the Bible every day, and faithfully prayed every day, but for one reason or another, you never got a chance to share about that with anyone else. In fact, no one even knew that you were doing it. Would that settle okay in your heart? If you provided for your kids and pointed them to Jesus and did everything you could to raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and yet they never turned around and thanked you, they never showed their appreciation for you, would the approval of Christ be enough? If you shared Christ with person after person, and yet no one ever came to know Christ, but many Immediately after you shared, someone else shared, and they came to know Christ, and they gave all the credit to that person. Would you be okay if none of the credit came your way? If you started a ministry here in town, or a ministry here at the church, and it flourished, and it was clearly because you did the work, and yet someone else got all of the praise, would that be okay with you? Or maybe to ask a group question. If we were faithful at this church to preach Christ, and to honor Him in the best way possible, and yet God chose to use another church in this town to spark a revival, and actually our numbers dwindled, and theirs flourished, and the gospel was advancing, would we be okay with that? Here's the thing. I think a lot of us, if we're honest, we're closet Ananias and Sapphiras. Now, hopefully we know enough to not do anything as blatantly dumb as they did. But I'm not so sure. Because like Ananias and Sapphira, our religion, I think, is oftentimes not motivated by love for God, but instead motivated by love for self and a desire to be praised by others. And given the outcome for Ananias and Sapphira, I think that should give us pause. So if you're Ananias and Sapphira, if you have those tendencies, let me encourage you this morning, first of all, confess and repent of your sin. That's the place to start. Confess and repent of your sin. Give thanks to God that there is forgiveness found at the cross. And then rest in that forgiveness and rest in the proof of Christ so that you no longer feel the need to do stuff in order to be seen by others. Listen, I think Jefferson Bethke in his video was on to something. Jesus is good, and religion can be bad. But what he missed is a religion that does not have to be bad. True religion, which is motivated by love for God and a love for others, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is beautiful. It's false religion, which is motivated by a love for self and self-righteousness. That's what we have to be careful about. In light of today's passage, in light of the dead bodies of Ananias and Sapphira, I think we should be careful. But more than that, I hope that like Barnabas, we are compelled by the love of Christ to radically and generously and sacrificially love others, to do good because we love God. Or maybe to say more simply, I don't want us to be a church of Ananias and Sapphira. I don't want to be Ananias and Sapphira. Rather, I want us to be a church of Barnabases. And the only way that's going to happen is if we are compelled by the love of Christ. So church, I want to simply remind you this morning of what Jesus has done that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose three days later, and that because of that, we have hope. And because we know that to be true, I pray that we would be radically motivated to then love others, that we would love because he first loved us. 
That's where true and good religion starts. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray that we would take this passage seriously, that we'd be encouraged by the example of the church in Acts 4 and warned by the example of the church in Acts 5. Lord, in order for us to be able to be more Acts 4, more Barnabas, and less Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, we are going to need your help. And so we pray that you would, in fact, help us. Would you give us a desire to live for you and to live for your praise? And would you allow us to be motivated by your great love for us? In Christ's name we pray, amen.